0: Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by Mariella Teft, a longtime Foreign Service spouse, nurse, and biostatistician who has used her skills and versatility to adapt to foreign service life from 1972 to 2017 including eight foreign postings and four of which she was the wife of the ambassador. Welcome Ariella, and thank you for sharing your experiences with us today. You're welcome. So let's start with your early years. You were born in 1948 in Oak Park, Illinois, near Chicago, and moved to Kansas City at age four. So, what was it like growing up in your family and community in the 1950s and 1960s?
1: Well, the first four years I was in Chicago, as you said, and it was a wonderful growing up period. I spent most of the time living with my grandmother because my parents lived in the same house. They had an apartment in the basement. When the second child came along with five of us and I'm the oldest, there wasn't room for me down in that one bedroom apartment. So I went up and I slept with grandma and became very, very close to her and my grandfather. So um, I feel like almost they're my parents. Then we moved to Kansas City and it was okay. I miss grandma and grandpa. We moved to Kansas City. I miss my grandparents a great deal, but they came to visit us and we went to visit them. I went to Catholic schools. Uh, In fact, my whole education has been Catholic because I come from Italian-American heritage on my father's side and Irish on my mother's
0: side. How did you decide to become a nurse and where did you study? and later you became a biostatistician. Where did you study for that degree and what does a biostatistician do? I had a bachelor's degree from Marquette
1: University in biology. We married and we went overseas right away and I found I had to quickly adapt to what was going on. We had our first child in Jerusalem and a little girl. And so there wasn't much time to figure out what I was going to do besides take care of her. And we went through war and stuff like that. But as far as the rest of the education, uh, nursing came later. I took nursing at a junior college level. And then we went overseas again. Hungary, and I used it over there. I used my nursing degree over there, but it wasn't sufficient for me. I, when I came back the next time home, I went and got a bachelor's degree in nursing. And then from there, I went into biostatistics because I found myself knowing that I'm a numbers person. I felt that was my calling more than nursing, but I was able to combine it wisely and work for Georgetown University at the Cancer Center. So I combined my knowledge of medicine with my biostatistics.
0: So that's a long journey of uh, education into how you got to where you are now and how you combine that with the Foreign Service. So you married John 50 years ago in 1971, and he joined the Foreign Service the following year. Um, How did you decide that that traveling lifestyle would be for you?
1: Well, we didn't really have a lot of choice. Uh, it was the wartime. My husband, he was a year younger than me, so he was looking for what he could during the, the wartime. And so he joined the reserves for number one. And then he looked at fields of uh, history to become a graduate student. History he was accepted at the University of Chicago. But then he, would, he had already taken the Foreign Service test. And when that came through, he was accepted. And so we jumped at that chance. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I had never been overseas before in my life. We just went in for it. And, and, you know, I knew from the beginning, basically, um, my life would be geared to what he chose. But we, once that decision was made, we worked together, you know, we figured it out.
0: And I was wondering if you had the opportunity to learn any of the languages of the countries where you and John served.
1: Very little. Our first assignment was in Jerusalem, and they gave us a few weeks. And, you know, it's a difficult language, Hebrew. The script is different. And so we had maybe five weeks, six weeks, and then we were sent over there. And uh, that was such a shock to me was really a shock to go to Jerusalem and actually not knowing that the whole place was desert <laughs> and having a rigor a washing machine and having to do the clothes that way. And, you know, back in those days, you didn't go back home to have your babies. You had your babies wherever you were posted. And so our, our daughter, Christine was born in Jerusalem and, um, And I had to deal with a ringer washer and diapers blowing in the breeze because Pampers was a new commodity back then. And if we were to go to the commissary, we had to travel by bus all the way to Tel Aviv because the embassy was there and we were at the consulate in Jerusalem. We adapted and I learned a lot. Um, We made some good friends when we got Christine baptized. one of our good Arab friends, Palestinian friends, was her her proxy godfather. So we had good relations with the neighbors, it was nice. Where was your
0: other daughter born? She was born in the US here So after Jerusalem, you were posted to Budapest and then Rome, and then a big change. So when John was DCM in Moscow from 1996 to 1999, and he was also charge for most of that first year, you worked with the American International Health Alliance. So please tell us about your life in Russia during those years. I arranged
1: to get this job pretty quickly after I arrived in Moscow. I talked to people that through the, the headquarters was in Washington, D.C. I had my degrees and I had my biostatistics by then. So I had this job with the American Health Alliance and we. I was brought in to work on developing a database system for their healthcare that they delivered in various places in the former Soviet Union. So um, they had places in Kazakhstan and in Uzbekistan and in Ukraine. And I was able to go to those women's health clinics in those areas and help to explain the advantages of using this database to keep your data in, to keep track of people's medication and what the doctors are doing for them, and to be able to share it. Because the sharing of this information would be easy today, but it wasn't so easy back then in 96 and 97. Anyway, that's what I did. I did that for a year. And the project was open and we got the database up and running in all these different sites and as far as i know it worked pretty well and then i sort of did the same thing when i they hired me as a nurse for the health unit there they found out i had computer skills that i could do all this stuff with them and i developed uh, a clinic form and uh, one of the doctors who moved on to i think saudi arabia uh, he liked my system so much that he took it with him and sent it up there. You know, now it's easy to do all this stuff, but it wasn't so easy
0: back then. Yeah, this is pre internet and early computers, but it sounds like your skills really helped organize the system. And it must have been fascinating to travel to the different republics in the former Soviet Union and see what their healthcare systems looked like.
1: I have to tell you about a funny episode. When I was in Tashkent at this women's health clinic, they were so careful with me and I had to go to a special bathroom on a different floor. So turns out there that was one of the only toilets in the place and um, there were footprints on the toilet seat. So obviously uh, one of the Uzbek women went to the bathroom there, but she only knew how to position her body in a different way, and so there were footprints on the toilet sink.
0: I'm sure you have a lot of stories about traveling all over and seeing the way that that things were. So let's move on. When John held his first ambassadorial post in Vilnius, Lithuania, which was from 2000 to 2003, which was 10 years after their independence, you worked at the United Nations Development Program, UNDP. So can you tell us a little bit about life in Lithuania? and how you balance that job in health with also being the wife of the ambassador.
1: I uh, got that job later, not in the beginning, but later. I had become friends with the head of the UNDP there. It was a wonderful Turkish woman. Uh, Her name was Cihan. She had to submit a report um, to the headquarters every year. And she was dismayed at some of the product that was given to her to put in there. The statistics were badly organized and didn't show the work they were doing very well. And so, you know, I went in there, took their data and made charts, three different annual reports. I even when I came back. From there, um, briefly, I wound up doing it because we were two years in between Lithuania and going to our next posting in Georgia.
0: So you really helped organize and systematize their health care and make more sense of it for them.
1: Well, yeah, to, to report. They had a report to headquarters, UNDP, so the headquarters was someplace else. But they want she wanted it to look more professional, and that's what I did.
0: So you went to John's second ambassadorship in Georgia, and those were interesting years from 2005 to 2009. So two years before you arrived, the Rose Revolution had already radically transformed that country. And then while you were there in 2008, the Russians invaded South Ossetia, which was Georgian territory, and they were marching dangerously close to the capital of Tbilisi while you were living there. So please tell us about your time in Georgia and your role as ambassador's wife and also the balance between that role and your professional nursing and being a biostatistician.
1: Okay, that's a lot to unpack, but it it was frightening, actually, when the Russians started. We got a sense of something being wrong when in the middle of the night we woke, woke up and were he- hearing, uh, planes roar overhead and bombs dropping closer to, to the airport, not where we live, but still you could hear it. And that woke you up So go out in the balcony. And then we heard the bombs dropping. Of course it was frightening. My husband, uh, you know, went into the the embassy right away and f- tried to find out what was going on. And, uh, Indeed, it was a war, and they were coming through South Ossetia. They scared a lot of people, and they damaged a lot of things for the for the Georgians. We were fine, but you didn't know that when the bomb you hear bombs dropping. It was afterwards that we saw the uh, the damage that was done, the children that were orphaned. There were many children orphaned widows. So uh, it was an awful experience. As when I was working for the Healthy Women in Georgia Project, which was what I was doing there for for most of the time, Um, my boss at the time said, you know, I want you to report on the aftermath of the war. And so I went with an interpreter to to Kutaisi and to Gory, Gori was basically the center. And there were a lot of camps for the displaced people set up. And I was able, with the interpreter, to interview these people and capture on camera some of the difficulties that they went through. And then she liked it so much that I made a presentation and wound up using it at the APHA, the American Public Health Association's uh, annual conference. This one was in San Diego. I felt that I was able to capture more than I would normally if I didn't do that reporting.
0: So were you at the time afraid that the Russians would take over the entire country of Georgia? Sure, sure. That was in the beginning. Um, but um,
1: I was at home when the uh, when we heard the bombs then my husband went in and I was home alone with the dog. And then I finally said, you know, hearing sirens going on, I called him up and I said, you're not leaving me in the house alone with the dog. And so he said to Carter, come and get me. And I we went and waited it out at the embassy and he had his DCM there. And so, and he had his dog. So, I mean, we were... About three or four people, and we got the sense that they they we knew they were coming down the road to Tbilisi, but they stopped well short of Tbilisi.
0: Was there ever any talk about evacuating and having American embassy personnel go home?
1: Yeah, there was. In fact, I think uh, he did evacuate the the dependents, um the wives and the, and the children, those that wanted to go. I wasn't going to do that, so I stayed with my husband the whole time. And the fighting went on for quite a while. I mean, we we knew they weren't going to come further to Tbilisi, but he, they had stretched all the way to Abkhazia, and the damage was heartbreaking and severe. And I remember my husband working hard and getting assistance. We had people come to visit us. We had, uh, even the following year, we had... Vice President Biden come, people wanted to see for themselves what Georgia was going through. In the end, we got a good deal of assistance. And I attribute my um, husband's ability to convince them (laughs) that they needed it really badly. So... That worked out well, but still, it was a painful thing to go through for the people of Georgia. We loved being there, actually, because uh, the people are so generous and so kind and so engaging.
0: And it sounds like you were really instrumental in documenting what they had been through and possibly in that way of getting help for them. I know that the embassy reached out to people like mental health specialists like myself and invited me there right after the invasion where I met John. Did you go to Georgia? I came twice. I came in 2008. I went to the refugee center and I also worked with mental health specialists who were displaced from South Ossetia and also talked with the children, which was very enlightening. So I know that the embassy was was trying to bring in mental health and other kinds of aid. And your bringing people out there and showing the situation was probably very instrumental in getting the help.
1: Well, there were a lot of people doing that. I never had the chance to meet you back then, but it's interesting that we wanted to be there at the same time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then I went back in 2010 and people were resigned to their fate; uh, they were in a better situation, but they still needed help. And it was one of the best groups I ever had of these educators and mental health specialists. They were so dedicated. So moving right along, your next post was another really fascinating one. You arrived in Kiev, in Ukraine, in December of two thousand nine. When John was named ambassador to Ukraine, and you continued your research and worked for the John Snow Incorporated Maternal and Infant Health Program from 2010 to 2011, so please tell us about that project and also generally about your life in Ukraine during the four years that you were there. And he was ambassador. It was a good,
1: a good time for us. Uh, we were there about three and a half years because we came in so late. There wasn't a war, but the war developed right after we left. It was it was uh, good. The people were good. Um, we traveled all over the place. And this project involved evaluating uh, a 10-year program that John Snow organized before. And it had somebody in charge. But when I was told to evaluate it, well, when you evaluate something, from a biostatistical standpoint, you have to look at the data. And the data, what I found was the data was not kept very well. And every year they did their own assessment, but they they changed the forms every year. So they weren't collecting the same amount of data or the same types of data. And in the end, I wound up taking the outcomes of the program, like maternal health and child maternal mortality and child mortality, because you can go back through the records and find out how many infants died and how many women died. And then that's what I wound up doing, going back to the health records uh, for, t- for a 10-year period and getting those. For each little uh Rion, is like a district. It's it's not a province, it's somewhere a little bigger than the city, but not much. And getting all the Ryone data together and um, and processing it, you know, giving talks and, and showing what actually happened. So, that's what
0: I did. So, were there programs there after you analyzed the statistics about maternal and infant mortality? Were there programs for the prevention or at least lowering those rates of early child death and maternal death during childbirth? Well, I had to
1: separate those rhymes from the ones that had the services of the of the healthy women program there and separate them for those that did not, and compare the two. And there was a statistical a difference, an improvement. I mean,
0: you could see it visually, but it, it didn't meet the 5%. So did they try to scale up some of those preventative programs once they knew that they were working?
1: In fact, the lady that had been in charge for much of the time, uh, she wound up leaving I don't think they were too happy that she wasn't collecting the data right. And um, and so they ended the program, but they were running a long time, 10 years. Medically, she was fine. She just wasn't doing the data right.
0: So tell us about your role as ambassador's wife in that very significant country during that significant time of being in Ukraine in the 2009 to 2011, actually 2009 to 2014 timeframe. Yeah, the war started in 14.
1: You didn't get the sense that there was gonna be doom and gloom right after we left. so it was actually a surprise to us that it started that fall, Uh, at least to me it was. People were great. I spent a lot of time organizing events at the embassy, especially at our home. We had a great art and embassy uh, display. I, I took the basement of the of the residence and actually made it into a display room for the art and embassy program. I got the embassy to get some beautiful carpets and, and turn it into what, what a gallery looks like in Washington, D.C. As far as um, the events, we we always tried to have, especially after 9-11 happened in Lithuania, we were there. Uh, every 4th of July reception we had uh, from then on, uh, we picked a theme and tried to uh Orient the food and what we wore and the music to that theme. Uh, obviously, after 9 11 in Lithuania, we were, New York was our theme. And so we had a jazz band come and uh, play New York songs. And we developed the food around tables of the different areas of New York doing. Asian food in one corner, the Jewish deli in another corner, Italian food in another corner. It turned out nice. So ever since, we tried to do that sort of thing in the other countries. And in Ukraine, our themes, I think, were California was one year, Hawaii was another year. And since our art and embassy program was based on uh, Chicago, actually... Our first theme was Chicago, and we had pictures going back to the World's Fair in Chicago in the late 1890s.
0: So it sounds like everywhere you went, you really showcased American culture in various ways and in ways that were relevant to the U.S., but also to the country where you were. I know there's a a large Ukrainian population in Chicago, so bringing Chicago to Ukraine, they brought Ukraine to Chicago.
1: I mean, actually, that's why we chose the theme of Chicago. We knew about that population. In fact, the president of Lithuania uh, from Chicago, and he was an American, he and his wife were both Americans. He gave up his citizenship, American citizenship, to become, to become president. He felt he couldn't retain both. Yes, we knew about the Ukrainian connection with Chicago, and that's why we picked the theme. And of course, I love Chicago. I have nothing but good memories with my grandparents there. So yes, it was an easy thing to do.
0: Okay, so from Ukraine, you move next door, and John capped off his four-decade foreign service career as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2014 to 2017, a very crucial country in U.S. foreign relations and foreign policy. So I would like to ask you, how was living in Moscow socially and politically for you, And especially during that time when there were strained relations between the U.S. and Russia, especially after Russia had invaded two of the countries where John had served as ambassador in the prior decade, Georgia and Ukraine. So just tell me what life was like there and about your relationships socially and politically.
1: Well, when we first got there, there was a political cartoon uh, in the... Russia, one of the Russian newspapers that showed John as a spy with his hat fedora on jumping from plane to plane in all these different places, Lithuania and Georgia, and now you, then Ukraine, and then where all the trouble spots started to come. And uh, they that's what they thought of him as a spy. But when John saw that cartoon, he asked uh, he loves political cartoons. He asked the artist, you know, if he could have uh, one of his signed copies because he loved the cartoon, and and he just thought it was <laughs> it was funny as heck <laughs> to have that. So um, then the artist thought he was going to be lambasted, <laughs> but he wasn't. John actually liked it. We couldn't have um, normal relations with other political figures in Russia because they didn't want to fraternize with our embassy people, so or at least the ambassador. So we didn't have many official visitors to our house from, from the Russian political scene uh, or government scene. But we... We threw our emphasis in connecting with the Russian people. Russian people are really nice. Uh, Most of them have nothing to do with the politics of the area. And so we entertained them a lot. Uh, We had many guests. We gave like two dozen or more um, musical programs. Uh, We had my husband wrote them the number down. You said we gave 27 concerts and uh, plus the three-fourth of July's that I organized. So we spent our time with the people and trying to connect with
0: them. Did you reconnect with friends whom you had had uh, 15 years earlier when John had been DCM in Moscow? You know, there
1: weren't the same amount of people, the same people that were serving there. Then uh, as far as uh, diplomats, but um, there were a few friends, but not not many.
0: When you were in Russia during that 2014 to 2017 time period and John was ambassador, were you able to work during that time professionally? No, I wasn't.
1: But the embassy kept me quite busy. I organized all the events uh, as far as picking the food, and I upgraded the The linens and the way we presented things, Uh, you know, you just didn't have always the boring white tablecloths that you get when you go to parties. So, um, and our art and embassy program was good. Yeah. I mean, that's what I did. I spent my time with entertaining more, more than anything else. Oh, but the other thing I did was in, in all these places since I guess it was Georgia I wound up organizing. I did a lot of organizing. I organized um, all the diplomatic spouses, a few of them in, um, in Russia. And we had monthly uh, luncheons and different ladies took turns giving the luncheons where everybody was invited. Um, so I started that and kept a list of all the women and did the contacting and that took quite a bit of time. Plus, we put on a every every year we um, we had a, a, an event for the ladies that I organized, and one of them was um, about that. Sh- oh, I'm sorry, I can't think of the name right now. The Chicago artist that became very famous uh, architect.
0: It sounds like what you did was like three or four or five cultural affairs jobs rolled into one. It was busy. But yeah, I found I wound up organizing a
1: lot of things uh, in my husband's career. Like, uh, even in the earlier posts, uh, you know, Hungary didn't have a lot of things for young kids. So I wound up organizing uh, a daycare center and nursery school for the children uh, at the embassy in the evening. I mean, not the evening, the afternoons. And, you know, if they didn't have like a, a Girl Scout, they didn't have brownies in, in Hungary.
0: So if they didn't have something, I I organized it. It sounds, it sounds like besides being a nurse and biostatistician, you were a jack of all trades and filled in where needed.
1: Yeah, I should tell you about uh, the Friends of the Georgian Ballet that I started, and it's still going strong today. It's a charitable group, but it started out being the diplomats, uh, you know, couples and stuff that wanted to help support the ballet. So I wound up organizing, uh, organizing
0: that, and it's still going strong. I bet that gives you a lot of pleasure knowing that people have been able to engage in that cultural activity and you were on the ground floor. Yeah. And in the process, I learned a lot about ballet.
1: You know, I became friends with the prima ballerina there. Her name was Nina Ananiashvili. I learned a lot about ballet. So I mean, it wasn't just me doing stuff for them. I learned a lot. So I'm happy I did it.
0: So here's a loaded question, and you'll have several answers. But has your foreign service experience given you any personal or professional opportunities that you wouldn't have had if you had just lived in the United States during all these decades? Yeah, I guess it
1: has. It did give me a lot. I'd gone to school at Georgetown, and then when we came back from a, a, an assignment overseas, one of my former professors was running the statistics program at the cancer center, and she needed somebody good. She knew she could count on me, so I, I went and I, I worked under her. For six six and a half years, so and you know, as a statistician at a cancer center, every every medical publication that they wanted to support their research and stuff and get it printed published, they needed to have a statistician on their team to check how they were doing the project, whether it was valid, what they were trying to measure, and uh, to get even printed or published. So I was involved with a lot of projects that wound up getting published during that time.
0: But overseas, did you have any personal or professional opportunities that you would never have had if you had been in the United States the whole time? Well, when
1: I was in Rome, I worked for a year as the school nurse of the of the University, Loyola University's year-long program. So I worked as a Nurse and dealing with uh, university students was a lot different than working as an embassy nurse in Budapest, where you had families and stuff to work with. I began to learn a little bit about the wild side of college life (laughs) working with these young people.
0: Okay, so I read John's oral history through the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. It was a long, history with many important parts to it. But he says in his history that you were his partner throughout all 45 years of his time in the Foreign Service and really a tremendous asset, not just to him, but to our country. And he gives you a lot of recognition as his helpmate when he says, Mariella has pursued her own career as a nurse and biostatistician, but it always has been secondary to the Foreign Service and going with him. I think if you talk to people who worked with us and served with us overseas, they would give Mariella an enormous amount of credit representing our country and for doing some very serious and concrete good things, particularly in her statistical work, which helped people In Georgia and Ukraine devised public health policy. So that is really a testament to all of your time in the Foreign Service and mainly overseas and how John gives you credit for that.
1: Well, I was going to say one thing about Georgia when I was working for the Health Alliance. With this program, one of the major things that I did was uh, working as co-principal investigator of a mortality study for women from 15 to 44 years of age. And what we found, uh, you know, we sent out trained doctors, uh, lady doctors to each of the women that died. And I think it was 2006, I'd have to go back and look at the year, but in that time period, um, they went back uh, to all the families of these women you know, these are young, younger women that were dying, and a lot of them, through the investigation, we found out, died as a result of breast cancer. And so, from that, and learning about that, and uh, and and getting the first lady involved, a uh, uh, first lady of the country, uh, Mrs. Sakashvili, uh she also took an interest in that. And through that, they started having mammogram programs, first in the capital and then going out to various areas in the country, all because we, you know, showed a light on this real problem among young people.
0: But that's very interesting uh, of how your research um highlighted the causes of some of this early mortality and how the country and the healthcare system could turn that into a preventive program through mammograms and other preventative measures. Okay, so do you have any final thoughts or lessons learned, words of wisdom or advice for spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service? And what would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a spouse? Okay, well, this is a loaded question in the sense that, um, you
1: know, times have changed. You and I go back to a much earlier generation. In fact, when I went to college at, at Marquette, um, you know what women were doing after they graduated, even from college? They were either secretaries, teachers, or nurses. Those were the primary fields. I entered married life knowing that I would be doing or supporting my husband and whatever he did. And then in between times or while he's doing that, getting educated in fields that would matter overseas. I knew I couldn't be a doctor after I married him. There wasn't the time to be educated as a doctor, but there was time in between periods to become a nurse and to become a biostatistician. And then I was able to use that when I was overseas. My main thought was, you know, this This is what I did, but it's all, this is what I could do overseas and also to support uh, my husband. So I figured if he's successful, then I'm successful. And I know that's an older, st- old standard uh, and not a current standard, but that was my life.
0: But him being successful and having all of these ambassadorial positions gave you an entree and gave you some power into doing what you do, too. So it seems like it was synergistic. Right. It worked both ways. I wouldn't have the access,
1: especially with what happened after the war in Georgia, if I hadn't been also the wife of the ambassador. So yes, I
0: realized then. So, Mariella, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your many experiences about how you have maintained your career as a nurse, as well as doing cutting edge medical research, co-authoring 47 professional studies, and being a valuable partner to your husband and an asset to our country in his long and varied foreign service career. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.